TV Drama Podcast. I'm Scott, and joining me again this week, someone who certainly would never go on a killing spree at a 7-Eleven, but who knows what he might get stuck inside an AI jerk machine. I <laughs> As long as he doesn't make an accidental sex tape, you know, he can be my disgusting brother. Hey, let's all say hello to Brian. Hey, Brian. <laughs> uh, do I have to tell uh, Logan any of this? Well, you're gonna have to. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Scott. Oh man, we are here tonight. We are. I am. I'm actually a little bit excited about this. We are here tonight to truly kick off what will now be a double-barreled podcast, loaded up with our insights and outlook on probably a couple of the best series in the HBO stable, definitely currently, if not all time, Succession and Perry Mason. Now, for listeners out there, if for some strange reason you only watch one of the two, just check the segment breakdown to know when to stop or start and so on. But we are going to get the prestige TV party started with the season four premiere, also known as the final season premiere, of Succession. Now, that episode was titled The Munsters, and this season of Succession starts off apparently a few months after the family blew apart last season, and now just days away from closing his deal to sell the family business to Gojo, it's Logan Roy's birthday, which itself is a callback to the very first episode of Succession uh, a few years back now, which also kicked things off with an episode that revolved around a birthday party for Logan. Except in many ways, this one is far, far worse. Instead of an awkward surprise party surrounded by family, this event, shall we say, feels more like the most stilted corporate of affairs. The remaining family that you have there, it's either by strained (laughs) marriage relations, such as Tom, or semi-closely related, well, maybe once removed, like Cousin Greg. Other than that, they're basically waystar sycophants, you know, maybe scattered other non-entities and, and employees. Logan's assistant and apparent semi-mistress of convenience, Carrie. And um, I was going to say that's kind of it because I almost forgot. You also got Connor. We do have one, we do have one Roy child there. Connor and his former hooker, bad playwright, now fiance Willa. They're there too. Pretty much spending the episode wondering if they should spend a hundred million just to keep his presidential polling numbers at one percentage point, you know, so he's still in the conversation. <laughs> but that's the setup, at least as far as the you know the 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 massive Logan chunk of this episode, where we where every moment we pretty much spend with him, I would say he's either rather intensely morose. But, you know, when he's not being snippy or dismissive or more likely than anything else, angry, which really seems to be the default for Logan, especially when I think and I think we can agree on this and I'll let you weigh in right now. It's when he's just being sad. And I think a lot of this episode is Logan is sad. Yeah, I think he uh, Logan's default uh, is to beat up on the people around him. And it's just not quite as fun to beat up on strangers and Tom and Greg as it is to beat up on his kids. 
And, uh, you know, I think each of them, each of them brings something to his world that he misses in the people around him, even though he's annoyed at them and pissed off at them, the energy they bring, he certainly misses in, in a way. And that manifests throughout the episode. Yeah. I mean, if one wanted to take it uh, a bizarro step further, cause it just occurred to me just now, I love when th- I love my favorite moments on podcast. when a thought just occurs to me. Not, 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 not like two days or two hours ago. To a certain extent, I think each of the, the, we'll say the main three children, since Connor has always been kind of that, you know, outlier who wasn't really as connected to the business and everything as everybody else was. Um, I think they all can represent a different aspect of Logan to a certain degree, you know, or at least, and I also think that's kind of the way Logan sees them. How much of him, of himself he sees in each one of them, be it Shiv, Kendall, or, or, um, or Roman. To, to a certain, which is hence why he might express, you know, his annoyance or even disgust or with, with them at certain times because, like, like, especially like where Roman is concerned. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of times you think, oh, he, he could really, you know, Roman could be his favorite, you know, being the young one. But then, but there's that certain thing that's off about Roman to him. There's that certain deviant side that he perceives about him or whatever. There's the damaged good side of him. Without, although that really would apply to most of his children, if not all of them, quite frankly, they're all they're all a little damaged, I think. Oh yeah, and and I, I, I know we'll talk later in the episode, but I, I think when he puts forth a request to be roasted uh, in the room later, I think that that that's the type of interaction with his kids. His kids would mercilessly be able to roast him in a way that that he would appreciate and cut back and i don't i don't know the people around him he finds uh worthy conversationalists to engage in the kind of language he's used to and the way he communicates i don't know we can we can talk about that as you just did we can talk about that right now that it's succession man we can talk about whatever the hell we want um you're absolutely right I thought that was one of the most fascinating parts of the episode. There's a, there's a lot of very interesting Logan moments throughout this episode, quite frankly. Perhaps more so than with any other character, other than maybe Shiv and Tom, I guess. I should you know put them aside. They're almost a special category at this point. Um, especially the, the thing with when he's... He's demanding people tell jokes and to roast him, as you were saying. Um and you're right, because, you know, the, the sycophants around them, they're, they're barely able to muster anything. And the, it becomes clear when one person does say something, which would be Greg. Um, it's funny that Logan Roy, who in many ways is considered kind of a stand-in for Rupert Murdoch on the show, kind of seems like, you know... He maybe he's got a little bit of Trump in him too, because when anyone says anything remotely critical to him, he immediately has to shred them in a far harsher way. Because poor cousin Greg, there, he finally gets the nerve to say something, and but he maybe he takes it a little too far because there's nothing really that funny about it when he basically is saying, "Where's your kids, Uncle Logan?" Yeah, and then he just goes, he just goes full bore into him, and I'm like going, "Oh man, Greg." Poor Greg. Um, well, it's almost reminded me of, you know, like the numbers when you're a kid, your mom's so fat or whatever. And, you know, like he, he talks about his kids and then Logan says, well, where's your dad, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, uh, and, and the way Greg delivers it. I mean, Nicholas Braun's 
portrayal of this sort of seemingly uh, clueless guy who who yet is a little more clever than he pretends to be, but still as awkward as hell is, is just fascinating. And the sort of genuineness he brings to what he says to Logan, that's, you know, almost like this heartfelt thing where you're forcing me to say it, I'm going to tell the God's honest truth. And then he's immediately shredded. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Greg has a lot of interesting and perhaps some of the more funny moments throughout this episode and, and not just with Tom, although I think it's mainly with Tom, but before that even happens, um, I had made a reference to Carrie a little, little while ago, um, who clearly, um, and I, I was referring to as a, you know, the potential baby mama, cause that's what the, the kids were thinking last season was, was going to be the case with her, or at least Roman certainly was. She has clearly gotten far more aggressive and ballsy, as we go into this season. And again, this is a few months later, so maybe stuff has happened over time for her to feel more comfortable being that way. The way she kind of rips into Greg about his date, which is, which, which is almost worse than the way Tom talks about her, at least initially, (laughs) although Tom gets in so many bizarre, beautiful cracks in later on. Um, Again, I think the the humor centerpiece of this episode, you know, the comic relief from a lot of the oh my gosh stuff, is the Tom a lot of the Tom and Greg stuff. Like there's that whole routine where Tom is ragging on the size of the bag that uh, I guess the woman's name was Carolina. She that she <laughs> and then it seems like it's the never ending list of faux pas. I mean, bringing her to begin with was a faux pas, apparently. And then every little thing, especially when we hear that she tried to take a selfie with Logan, we didn't need to see it to imagine how bad a moment that would have been. Although I like to think there might be a deleted scene somewhere of that actually having happened. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the, I, I think we always talk about on almost the shows, who is the, the stand in for the audience. And in, in many ways, through some of the first three seasons, Greg was almost the proxy for the normal person um, because he's awkward, doesn't understand the world, doesn't come from this. But he's not quite you and me, but he has probably the most uh, as grounded as you could be in this group of people perspective sometimes. Um, and, and, you know, doesn't isn't aware of all the conventions, all the rules and thinks, you know, like, for instance, in this episode that it's OK, a cousin gets to bring a plus one. But he didn't really make sure he didn't know, you know, what the, the stuff would be. And which is odd thinking, you know, he's been in this family now three or four years uh, and still doesn't understand the way everything operates in Logan's sphere. Right. Uh, I, I, it's funny. I, when you just mentioned it, I actually, by the time, before we do the next podcast, cause again, I don't, I don't really feel like looking at it right now. I'm not sure how much time has passed on the show since it began. Cause did they say how old his, his birthday was here? Cause I know his, his first one was when he turned 80. 
Yeah, I think he, if I remember right, he was 83 or 84. At the, I guess it was his 83rd or 84th birthday. Okay, so, okay, that is it. Okay, I just didn't, because sometimes I don't want to make the assumption that it actually has been three or four years, you know, and then it's, it's, it's kind of like the Breaking Bad situation, and you realize, hey, you know, most of that was supposed to have taken place over the course of a year kind of a thing. Right. So I wasn't sure. Um, and I, oh, by the way, get ready for when we talk about Perry Mason later. I believe I have some corrections I need to make about things I keep saying. <laughs> the bad reviews will be coming. Um, back to Greg. Also, just just because it has to be mentioned, my my the the, the best thing of all was when he the fact that Greg has gotten considerably more smarmy, <laughs> you know, especially late last season and now this season, where he talks about um, that he had you know taken the girl into one of the rooms and 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 done stuff, and then <laughs> there was rummaging. It's like, did you rummage to fruition? <laughs> And then yeah. Tom, Tom, who can be so gloriously, mischievously evil. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny how you, I, you kind of think of Roman that way. It's like, no, I think it's more Tom. Because Tom convinces him that he needs to confess his, confess his sordid behavior to Logan because, you know, it got picked up on the security cameras anyway, which means you've you've already made him, essentially made him a sex tape. Yeah. And I'm like going... I don't I don't think that's true and I don't think you should do that. I think that's a bad idea. Yeah, and 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 Greg is naive enough to to fall for it, but but I, I think the difference between this group and you know, the group of the siblings is, you know, if if Greg is sort of behaving like Roman, Roman actually would have rummaged to fruition whereas Tom has the conversation with Logan, he does. Shiv would have had a similar but much more uh, in-depth discussion. Um, the, the the absence for me, and I think almost in a way, the security guard discussion where him and Colin go for the walk and go to eat, and he takes Colin, who he says is his only friend, the sort of deep existential questions Logan asks about life and death, I think those are almost the kind of things of all the kids. I mean, who would you talk to about that? Probably he probably if he let his guard down, that would be Kendall. I mean, Kendall's probably um, the existential thinker of the group in, in that manner, you know, troubled by things like that. And and so there are all these pale stand ins for his kids that he has these various interactions with that, that he finds, you know, more and more. Uh, unfulfilling. Right. And considering the rather dark things he says and when he expresses his views to his pal, Colin, which when he said he's his pal, that, 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 that was like one of the most saddest things in the entire episode. I thought, because you're, you're the the one that you can talk to and you're close to is your employee, your, your, your security dude, who's basically just, you know, he's sitting there because he's taking a paycheck from you. That's, that's why he's there. But his views on everything from is there is there an afterlife to just people in general, yeah, both of which are either you know or extremely negative. You know, it's one thing not to believe in, in an afterlife. I, I think that many people feel that way. But his views on people, again, I might say things like that, somewhat jokingly. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe I have more in common with Logan than I thought. <laughs> that was just my birthday too. I would have had a better party than that. Um, 
one more th- one thing just on on Logan before we uh, we get to the, the rest of the family. Um, it, there's a there's a there's a refrain he uses a few times throughout the party, and it also becomes the title of the episode. Um, he keeps referring to the people around them as the Munsters or the fucking Munsters because oh yeah, if we're gonna talk about Succession, there's no way we're not gonna be cursing because there's. I think, you know, if I go through the first three seasons of Succession and the first three seasons of The Sopranos, I'm not sure which one uses more, uses the F word more. It might be Succession, unbelievably. So I think the only show that gives it a run for its money is Deadwood. It might be. I actually saw a chart. Um, I, I didn't uh, make a little copy of it so I could have it in front of me. Um, the, the chart had, uh, because it was on Reddit or something, and it had like three different, uh, charts. One was just number of times the, you know, I'm just gonna keep saying the word, so everyone knows it's an explicit podcast. One chart was number of times just the word fuck is used by each character. And they had an entire list of characters and how many. And the person you think would be number one is not number one, he's number two. So, I, which was interesting. Then it's the number of times someone has been, I'm trying to remember. I think the second one was who said, someone has said fuck off, has been told to fuck off. That's the one I saw is, is who has Logan said to fuck off to the most. And I can't remember what the third one was. I mean, they're all related to that. I'd, I'd have to go back and look. I didn't keep it. Um, but it's just the F word in general. It's actually Roman. Roman is in the lead with 500 something. Uh, then Logan, then Kendall, then Shiv, they're they're they're, they're, they're definitely they're, they're the top four, and they're they're in the they're in the several hundreds, and then it kind of drops off after them. You know, you, you get your others, you get your, you get your Tom, you get your you know, oh there's Connor, he, oh he he's got like you know f- he's got forty fucks, you know, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, I derailing the thing I'm trying to bring up is about the monsters, um, and why he says that now. The thing is, obviously, the first of all, we all know the monsters. You know, you know, it's it's kind of a to to a certain degree, it's a very sly wink at, at an old sitcom, which was a show with characters that aren't simply monsters. Generally speaking, they're basically the dead or the undead. You know, you, you've got you've got vampires, you've got you know Frankenstein's monster. You know, you've got a werewolf who's you know obviously you know cursed, whatever. But the thing is, the monsters was a family unit. And Logan here is clearly sad about not having his family around him for the last few moments, which, even though he's far too vindictive or spiteful and obstinate to even make a call to ever say otherwise. But, um, like, it, it's just, it, it kind of exemplifies itself when he's trying to, when he's asking them all to, to roast or, or make jokes or whatever. And the fact he can't even get that going, it, it's just, it, it, it makes him think, refrain about the, uh, the idea that he's just surrounded by people who were just, you know, it, it's like they're. I said non-entities before, but it's kind of like that. It's like it's like it's they're just monsters to him. It's a, it's a weird choice to use, but I kind of sort of got it. You know, what I mean, it's, I, I probably didn't do a. You probably might do a better job of explaining it than I, I did. I but. took it to mean like they're they look the people around him are supposed to be. He's supposed to be swimming with sharks, but the people around him are fish. They're not really sharks, but all of his kids, you know, if his kids are around him, them having an aspect of him, like they are, they're, they're, they're formidable opponents. And, and whether he thinks he can crush them or not, he knows they have talent and skill at the dark arts and the way 
that the people around him don't. Like everyone around him deflects. Everyone around him is afraid to tell him the truth. Uh, no one will challenge him. Uh, even though he doesn't really want to be challenged, he hates being not challenged at all, almost worse. Hmm. Okay. So, since we're talking about the kids, we should probably fold back the episode a little bit and actually check in with the three Roy siblings. Um, the ones that actually care about the business as opposed to having insane presidential ambitions. Um, and as we start off the episode with them, they're collaborating on this potential new venture called The Hundred. And isn't it pretty clear to anyone watching that, much like that beta website page that they're being shown, this is an idea that really just feels like a stand-in, a stopgap, a place marker, that it's clear one, eh, maybe two of them really aren't all that interested in. At least not as much as something that would also help to screw over dear old dad. I mean, look, anything that takes this many um, things to mash up to describe... You know, it's it's Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker. You know what? If you got to go that far, <laughs> it already sounds like a bad idea to me. Yeah. So, and then you get this this quick little odd chain of like really like mild feather ruffling events. You know, with, you know, with Shiv and Tom, which is what leads to the trio jetting off to the Pierce estate. You know, to cut off their father and, and win that bid for Pierce Global Media. And like I said, that little call from Tom to Shiv, and this, and I love the little back and forth. Are you asking or are you informing me? And, the, and I'm curious how people took that call or how they chose to interpret Tom's, I would say his motivations for that call, because one could very take it. Is it, is it surface level? Do we believe what he's saying? Do we think there's, there's an under, there's, is it, more of an underlying motivation for what he's saying. I mean, is it because you know, he's he's telling her like, you know he's worried if there's be if there should be any gossip or photos of him with Naomi Pierce who actually was involved at one time with Kendall that it could be taken the wrong way, or is he actually trying to get under Shiv's skin because of what the way she went about things for so long, kind of showing off what he's potentially might be able to do despite his words to the contrary. Or is it even related to the whole business deal situation with, with Pierce and kind of, cause it so clearly is what tips them off to begin with. Cause what else could it mean? Wouldn't he doesn't, don't we think he would know that they're savvy enough to pick up on that? And if so, why is he doing that? Although if you play that, if Tom is, is actually become more of a, a game or chess player, there actually is a good reason why he would be doing that. And I, it kind of occurred to me as I was just talking. So, <laughs> so now that I actually already know what I think. <laughs> and, you know, hint, I think I just, I think I just hit it, but, uh, I'll, I'll throw it to you to kind of expand on and what you think, uh, was behind all that. And if it's what I, and if it's what I think it is, I think he's playing chess. Um, and, and I think that the, the implication is, is he's now in her old role at Roman. I mean, at uh, Logan's side and he's operating the way she did when she was with at Logan's side and he's playing the game the way she played it back at her. Now I do think there's probably a little bit of hurt pride satisfaction in him saying it and doing it the way he did to also throw the personal edge into it to maybe wound her a little bit or to get her off her game. 
But I think it's more of a power move of him to say, like, I'm the one by your dad's side and I'm behaving the same way you did to me. Hmm. Okay. All right. That sounds plausible. Sounds reasonable. Um, I think that's part of it. Definitely. Maybe even most of it. I also think he might have some issue with the the whole Pierce global media thing becoming part of part of their their thing, because no matter as we don't know exactly what has changed with him and Logan over the past three months, although we do get that delightfully awkward, bizarre uh, conversation between the two of them, and you can see like okay, this has been this they say it's at least a few months li- later. And it doesn't feel like anything's really changed that much between them. You know, when, I, when the most that Logan says, if we're good, we're good. Well, that's, that doesn't, that means literally nothing. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. So his foothold in the company, it was still the news division, which, you know, obviously the, the Pierce news is, is, is a different beast. It's, it's kind of like Fox News and CNN. And since we, we still don't know, how things break out with the Gojo thing, and maybe with him aligning with Logan, he still um, is going to maintain a position there, unlike the rest of them, which I, which I'm, I'm guessing is the trade-off that's happened here. So I, I felt, in a weird way, it's not like he's going to go out of his way to sabotage it, but I don't think he minds if that deal gets sabotaged, and if his hands can be clean on it, and if he can, and better still... If he can work both sides of it, where he does that to tip them off, but then is also communicating with Logan to kind of like look like he's the inside man and trying and trying to derail them as well, you know, it, it's kind of like an interesting power play for him. So again, I, t- as Tom proved, if if no if no if at no other time by the end of last season. Tom might be, I think Tom turns out to be a lot smarter than we might have given him credit for. Um, I think we might have seen it also when they got married. I think from the time they got married on with that whole scene, which was more about the relationship, but the way he spoke, you realized, oh, he's, there's a lot more operating upstairs than we thought. And now we, we, we see that coming into play. Although he can still, he, he's still a real dick, <laughs> but, but, but there's at least more, there's a lot more to him than I think we might have thought, at least in the first couple seasons of this, of this series. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, what I'm curious to see, I mean, I thought I had as all this went down, um, one of the, one of the, you know, and and I saw some people complain about it and I thought, okay, you're watching a show with the richest people in the world. And I saw people complain and say, say, well, they just talked about getting 10 billion, like it was nothing on the phone and you wouldn't be able to do that that fast. And, uh, and I thought, okay, then why are you watching this show? I mean, that, that, the the access to billions of dollars is sort of baked into what this show's been for three seasons. But I, I had a, a thought that the last card Tom could play is say the deal goes through, um, you know, half of Shiv's interest, unless there's a prenup that we don't know about or have seen. And I don't recall Tom signing a prenup. I don't think for their wedding. I, I, I you know what? I, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna risk being proven wrong one more time on this podcast. If it happens, it happens. But I think there's no way. I believe that was a plot thing, and there is no way Logan Roy would let any of his children 
marry someone else without there being a prenup involved. There's, I, I there's, would, there's simply no way. Well, I, I had that thought, and I don't remember. I didn't go back and watch. But, Especially but if, Shiv. <laughs> but but an interesting twist, say, say that did happen or it didn't happen, an interesting twist would be, um, say Shiv didn't sign it and lied to him and say she did, and they and Logan now knows Tom could file for divorce and lock up half of her assets, and she can't kick in her three billion to finish the buy or to finish the sale, um, because he could make a claim to some of those assets. Um, and and you know the real question watching this episode is is how brutal how brutal is this going to end up? And you know Tom and Shiv have a heartbreaking kind of tender moment in the episode. But once she severs him for good, if she really does sever him and he can go really brutal, I think that's one of the more compelling things to see what's going to happen. Okay. While, while you were speaking, um, I, I actually, used, I finally got the brave to use my phone instead of the actual computer keyboard. So people wouldn't hear it. <laughs> on the podcast like a thousand times before. And so I want to look up because obviously we just simply don't remember. Um, shame on us because that was a major plot point throughout season one. There's actually, I think there's even an episode titled prenup, which is kind of bad because that's what it's about. Um, so there is a big thing about there being a prenup between Tom and Shiv. Um, now there, and there's even jokes with them about their, their lawyer and their mom's opinion on the document and, you know, everything from sperm counts and so on and so forth. Now, and there's also something baked into it uh, dealing with infidelities, which right. is interesting as well. But I'm just, I'm, I'm skimming through this right now. Um, I, I don't think we're ever told the very specific details. But uh, I'm going to read right from the article here. Um, Tom's mom also calls the prenuptial agreement a little unconscionable. But Tom signs it anyway, even if he gets screwed over by the terms. That doesn't sound like a random description. Unconscionable is an actual legal standard that could throw out a prenup. Were the succession writers foreshadowing that Tom would have grounds to invalidate the prenup? And as we know, cheating continues to come up for the couple in the days before their wedding. Tommy sees a blowjob. Okay, we all know all this. Um, but it, it's just interesting because you bringing this up, and they have not touched upon it as of yet. So basically, here we go at the end of the article, referring to the financial ramifications of the divorce. If it should turn out that Shiv and Tom's pre prenup doesn't hold... Could he get some of her ownership stake and thus some of the money that they're trying to use to buy Pierce Media? We don't know. So you bringing that up, you might be having a little bit of a look at you, a psychic over there, because that could be a thing. And then also, again, more reason for him to clarify what he was doing or not doing. Although, although it's funny that even though it's a joke, they that this article and it was just to give. Proper credit. It was from uh, popsugar.com is where I read that article. So I want to make sure I give at least some credit to someone there. Well, I, I did not see that article, but let me say um, what would be kind of a really uh, delightful twist would be, it, you know, Tom says to Logan, if I'm not with Shiv anymore, am I okay? 
Logan might be more than okay with him not being with her. Mm-hmm. If knowing that the divorce could, could sink a deal and he might actually support Tom in that. Right. And then we might, and then if it comes down to that, if the grounds to, um, uh, that, that would cancel out the prenup is, is, is a matter of infidelity. Well then like, okay, who did what worse? I mean, right. You know what, what she had been doing or had done, but he admitted to, I mean, the blowjob is a thing, <laughs> you know. So that that's kind of interesting, and becomes you know does it become a chain of events? I mean, because you did that, out of, was it an additional agreement? Did you do it out of spite? You know, it. it, it I I can anticipate they might go. I think that's a, it's a very good likelihood they might go there. I, I could see it. I'm, I don't want to guarantee it. There, you know, the, the show is way too is way smarter than I am, but um, it's an interesting idea because I just. I kind of tabled that in my mind because I I knew that they had, they had to have some sort of prenup because I kept thinking there's no way. I just forgot. Oh, that was actually a big thing they were talking about a lot in season one. It's been a while, COVID. Let me alone. Anyway. <laughs> well, as I said, I wasn't sure. But, I mean, even – it is interesting that article raises that at the time there were questions about it raised then. So, you know, it'll be curious to see if they planted that you know, trap door then for, for later in the, in the shows. Uh, right. And, and, story. and I guess in, a, in an interesting way, if they were to go that route to any extent, and it is a very good likelihood they could, it would be interesting that an agreement connected to the dissolution of a marriage or a divorce, whatever, or a settlement or whatever you want to call it, once again, will play a major part in screwing up possibly Shiv's plans or the, or the, all three of their plans, much like the, the thing, the situation between Logan and his ex-wife, how that got changed. And now so, it, it, on one hand, it would be like, Oh, would you repeat yourself or, Oh, is it just an eerie parallel, but it's going to go in a different direction? So I'm very curious about that. So it's, it's a very interesting idea. I think I think I think you're onto something there, sir. Um, so I mean, I, I, between the the three of them, either when they were at the the office dealing with you know when they were first talking about the hundred venture, which is totally silly, or when they eventually go to the Pierce estate, and um, it's interesting. There, I, I love their interactions with each other because. Even though they're still kind of ripping on each other, it's still there's a still it's it's certainly more lighthearted than we've seen before because we haven't seen them the three of them on the same page for any length of time other than like you know several minutes of the la- at the end of the last step of the finale you know and that, that the fact that they actually are legitimately working together and in, or and in making the a concerted effort to work together they're not being forced like the situation with Kendall and and like Roman back way back in season 1 or or in competition with each other like with all the stuff between all three of them or, the, or between Shiv and Roman and Kendall doing his own thing um so it's an interesting dynamic to watch how it's working and it's very I think it's a, a very clear and deliberate that we're seeing that in contrast to what's going on at the Logan party. And this is what's missing from the Logan party. This is what he's missing. You know, he, he's all about the fact that they all, you know, they all, they, they, they all, they all, they all shred on it, rip each other, but that's what they do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I noticed in the episode, uh, when it showed the, the trio, as I, as I referred to them in my notes, that it was sunny outside 
you know, there was lots of light, natural light coming in uh-huh. that Logan's party was at night. It was in a house. He walks through the park at dark. He's in the restaurant with Colin. It's dark. He's in the study with, you know, everybody. When he goes upstairs for the meeting, it's dark. Almost all the stuff with the trio, it's not dark. It's light. Uh, you know, the, most of the time at the Pierce estate, there's lots of sunlight. They're walking outside. They're on a porch or, you know, on some sort of enclosure at the, you know, the, like a back porch or something talking to Nan and uh, the contrast in the lighting, uh, I thought was very interesting to clearly set the contrast between the two parties. Uh, and, and I like that, although they're on the same page, the show kept to the true nature of the characters that they're still they can't help but bicker and and argue about all the you know various pathos they all have that Shiv shows up late and and you know Roman and uh, and uh, Kendall are paranoid like where where could she be like why why is she late they're still not complete trust uh, but when Shiv shows up her and Kendall kind of team up on Roman and. Roman's the one who really wants to do a new idea and they kind of give it lip service until he understands they really want to do this other thing to screw Logan. But then he joins in. So there's still an uneasy alliance. It's lighter, but the show didn't, you know, completely discard their personalities to make them all bought in a hundred percent. So, and I, I, it's curious. I mean, the weak point they set up at least in this episode, I think is will Roman be the pressure point that Logan tries to attack first. And I think they did a little bit of setting that up in this episode. Right. I mean, it's always been perceived that would be the case from before, even what happened in the, in the finale. I mean, that's who he, that's who he went to. That, that was still the one he was still had his in with. He felt, um, gotta remember he's, he's the youngest one. He, he doesn't have the, the, he doesn't have as many years of baggage as the other two have. Kendall has the, the way it's set up. Kendall was always supposed to be the heir apparent because Connor was out of the mix from the get-go. Connor wasn't taken seriously from the get-go, which, and as we see that character, we know, no, he, he wouldn't be. Kendall th- thought he was the heir apparent, and once he wasn't, he's been wanting to take down the old man, whatever, and they were opposed to each other. Um, then all the business happened with the, the murder, uh, the death of the waiter and the, the use and the manipulation, which only made it worse once he broke out of that spell or trance he was under, whatever. Shiv is a more recent, uh, more recently burned by her dad, the, the, the promise that he never kept, that he kept stringing her along and then it became very apparent it it was just lip service. He was it was never going to happen. So she's he's got long. Kendall has long lasting hurt. Shiv is more fresh. That's why that's why she's more on the attack mode even than Kendall is. But Kendall yes. is more than happy to go along with it. Roman doesn't quite feel the same way that they do. You know, he's been he's been smacked down, and and his dad has said mean things to him, whatever. But there's still part of him who like still thinks he can get his dad's approval and still prove himself because again he's considerably younger than they are now. At least that, that's the way his character um, is portrayed here. So even the setup at the beginning of this season, he's like, okay, I, I he he's interested in just starting this whole new venture, you know, and all these things. And they still want to go get dad. And he's right. like, and because his heart isn't quite in that the way those two are, but he's going to come along because where else can he go? 
he at this point he can't go back to dad at least that's the way it seems right now it would be kind of yes i do believe that's a possibility um that that he he would be the one that that logan would if logan was going to try to cut one off from the others it's definitely roman would be the target that makes the most sense um so i i think obviously it's the final season but i think just in terms of where we're going to go with a character Roman might have the might have the most um, mysterious and intriguing uh, arc for this season because we don't know. I mean, and I think we've had a lot of focus on Kendall. He's he's kind of he's he, he's been portrayed in many ways. He's kind of felt like the lead more often than not on the show, you know, outside of Brian Cox himself, of course. And then it, it's kind of sh- then it would kind of sh- it shifted to, to Shiv a lot, you know, as well. Because of all the stuff that was going on, because she was supposed to be taking over, whatever. Roman hasn't had quite his time in in center stage the way the other two have, so I, I wonder if that's where they're 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 gearing this, or 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 just or the other supporting characters are going to start to play a larger part, like the Tom slash Greg stuff and, and stuff like that. Right. No, I, th- I think that's that's a really astute thought that maybe this, you know. Um, this season's more Roman centric uh, because he's really the crux between both the sides. Um, he, he's sort of the one in the middle and, you know, to their detriment. I mean, I think we, throughout the episode, both Kendall and Shiv still um, disregard him a little bit. Yeah. Like even, even, you know, when they make the final bid and her and her and uh, Shiv and uh, uh, Kendall, say, oh, well, the, the bid's 10. And Roman's like, so just throw a billion on for nothing. <laughs> right. and, 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 you know, and while maybe that's the right move, if it gets it done in their world, you know, they talk over him and, and just sort of, you can see them almost sync up in that moment, that they're playing a game that he's not quite all in on and doesn't quite understand and doesn't make sense to him. Right. And, 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 much like we saw in previous seasons where Roman is kind of like trying to push more, more uh, endeavors that are more relevant to the future of media and where we're going. And it's like, it was like the situation with Logan where he was almost going back to a much more archaic model that he was, of what he was going after and, and where it was the total opposite of where Roman was going. And maybe he sees this the same way because, you know, Pierce Global Media is still kind of like well, but they're, they've been around forever. They're they're more old school, you know. It's it's not like something like a venture like like this one hundred would be, for example. Even though obviously on a much smaller scale. Um, getting back, so the, so they're at the the estate, and then one of the great conceits of the episode is to almost literal literally put Tom in the middle. Tom is on the phone. And he's on, he's going back and forth in the phone. He's on the phone with them. He's on the phone with Shiv. He's on the phone with that, with Logan. You know, they're, they're sharing messages back and forth. And that's when you see that although Logan might is very, has been clearly been sad about, you know, having been broken from his family. And he, and I think he hates that. I think he hates that he's sad about it, you know. Um, but when all of a sudden, oh, they're pushing me. Oh, they're challenging me. 
because there's nothing that gets him going more than being challenged, as we saw, you know, last season and other seasons with with, with just Kendall and whatever. But the viciousness that he still will speak to them and, and about them. I mean, when he's relaying messages through Tom to Shiv, and he says something like, tell your wife she's never had a single fucking idea in her life. That's a rough thing to say about your daughter. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's business, man. <laughs> you know? no, I think there's something in him that, you know, he doesn't respect anyone, but he respects people who who don't try the least. He loves crushing everyone, but the people that fight back a little bit, it's there's a little fun in it. And there's all and although it's dark and and you know, malevolent the way that he talks about the kids, he becomes energized and alive in that moment when he feels that he's being challenged. Right, absolutely. So you know, in the rest of the episode, at least as far as this is concerned, you know, we, we, we have the play of negotiations that which which they are amazingly are still able to sprinkle in the occasional bits of humor or oddness. You know, like, you're like what comes after nine and <laughs> stuff like that? Because <laughs> we all, it seems like we all know where this is going to go. Now, do we know by the end of this episode is this is this sale actually definitely going to happen? We don't know. I mean, they've agreed to it, but we know by the time we get to the next episode, it could fall apart. Um, I I love Logan's final line on the matter. He gets on the phone and just says, congratulations on saying the biggest number, you fucking moron. Yeah. <laughs> it's just pretty like, okay, but, you know, it, it's, it's a rare moment of victory for them. Again, we'll see if it lasts more than, you know, in the next episode or not. But we we have a couple things that happen at the end of the episode. Well, before you move oh, on, I want to I, I want to add one other thing about sure, the sure. negotiations. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think the the writers did a masterful thing in this episode, and that is at some point Nan's behavior throughout the negotiation of feigning like, you know, oh, I've got to honor a, a deal. Oh, but you came up with that number. Give us time. The way she milked the oh, negotiation. Yeah. Oh, it was ridiculous. Like it, yeah. It, it it was so absurd and, and try and tried your patience that you were like you, you know, you you wanted somebody to win and her to eventually sell. Mm-hmm. Uh that, that although, you know, in the in the grand scheme of things, they pose her as this ethical person in opposition to Logan you see that like her ethics are for sale and, and, and what she comes up with is almost the perfect solution because her legacy media company would not be absorbed by Logan who she despises, but could then be taken and be put in competition with him. And she still gets her money and, and she works out a position juxtaposed between the two sides that's great for her, but you see really, you know, she's about money too. And, and the way that they did it, I mean, I, I lost my patience with her long before the kids did. And I thought that was really well done. Right, 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 right. I mean, yeah, you, you, you don't get to be the person who's in charge of a, basically a media empire that's worth billions of dollars without having gone through levels of negotiations for any number of things over the years. So, the whole, exactly. It's kind of like when you talk about the fe- the feigning disgust and disdain. It's like, oh, 
it's business and you've been in this business for a while. You've, you've surely made acquisitions and dealt with things of this nature. It's just, this is a bigger one. And you, it's what you just said. I mean, this is the perfect situation for her. It, it, it makes so much sense. So it'll, again, does that mean it can't be derailed somehow? Of course not. But it, it is a really nice, it is the ideal setup for her. It's like, oh, It'll go to the people who are in most in opposition to him right now. So right. it couldn't possibly. The of course it'll be done in, in you know in a way opposite to the way he's gone about things, which actually feeds into the very ending of the episode. But I didn't want to hop. Well, didn't really want to hop over there just yet. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree with all that. So now can I go to it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, no. Don't say, do not say sorry. You, it was it was important to be said. Come on. Come on now. I'm just going to make you tell, say everything now. So, <laughs> I channel my inner cousin Greg. So Shiv comes home. And she comes home because apparently she's not hoteling this time around. So she comes and encounters Tom in, you know, kind of the middle of the night. And we have this scene between the two of them. And it, it's, it's an interesting scene because other than maybe maybe the scene between Logan and his bodyguard, perhaps, or whatever we call him. I guess he's a security chief, whatever the fuck he is. Um, it's interesting because it's, 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 it's the scene with the most raw emotion involved. And because you're dealing with the dissolution of a, of a marriage, of a relationship, of a deal, really, because maybe that's what this, all this really was, at least for her, um, it's interesting how the tide has turned in terms of who has always seemed to be the more dominant or person in control of the situation because it had always been her in the past. And that seems to have, even though she, she kind of came out ahead with this whole Pierce thing, going to what we were talking about before, if we believe Tom actually doesn't mind that so much. It's this things are still working the way he needs them to work for himself. Um, so this maybe it's more diabolical, like we were saying, but it gets really, it doesn't go too far where it could be a lot. They're still avoiding pain because he still wants to talk to his credit and she doesn't because, and you under, because in her mind, I think we would, and it makes sense. What is there to talk about? Because, you know, he he's had issues with the situation since it became clear to him that their marriage was an arrangement and that they could do things. And that wasn't what he wanted to begin with. Um, but when he, in her mind, and, and correctly uh, thought by her, essentially betrays her, that's the betrayal. That's That betrayal is her life. And her legacy, as far as she sees it, and and she's right to say that as well. I think I think that as well. So that to her is a much bigger, deeper cutting betrayal than oh, you had sex with somebody. This is and and you know, and I know he and it, and it it again it it does once again they do humanize Tom here 
I mean, everything from, you know, he's just wearing, he's just wearing like a white t-shirt. So he looks, you know, he looks very, you know, so he's not all, you know, perfectly in his, you know, suit or khakis, whatever, whatever people like him would be wearing. I don't know. I mean, I'd be billion dollar khakis, I guess. Um, but he, he want he just, he so desperately wants to be able to, to explain himself to, sh- to say that he, he made the decision to do that. And it was for the right reasons. If you don't only really understand, but. She'll never want to hear that. Does that mean we won't get that a scene like that eventually? We might, and but right now, that that means nothing to her. There is nowhere for them to go. So that's where I, when we come to that realization, when they come to the realization of of divorce, which leads to what you were saying before about wow, I wonder about that prenup. I wonder how that's going to play out here. Will someone decide to well, and and meaning Tom try to pursue something? And will that be something that Logan would be in favor of or not? If, if he'd be in favor of it as far as de- derailing plans that she had for that money. But again, if, if, if Tom is trying to play a long game, Logan's good about playing long games too. He also might see in the short term that would work for him. In the long term, I don't know if he'd want Tom with that kind of control, especially if at the end of the day, once you put the business aside, I don't think he wants to be ostracized from his daughter Shiv for the rest of their lives. I don't, I, 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 I just, I just, I, I think that although Roman's the one he could easily go to, I, I, I still think he probably, because Shiv is the most normal <laughs> of his children. And I think, I always thought Shiv is the most like him in many ways. So that that's why it also made sense that she, he was picking her, and then he realized, no, I I don't want to give it up to anybody, much less you, right? So, well, I I, I will say that for for Tom in Tom's defense, um, Shiv does tell Nan she's get she's getting a divorce earlier in the episode because yep. Nan brings up like, well, isn't it going to be a problem for you with your husband still? running Waystar or, uh, the AT- ATN, ATN. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and she says, Oh, that won't be a problem. I'm getting a divorce. Oh, uh, absolutely. Right. right and, right. and I think the, the way I read that scene and maybe people can disagree, feel free to comment and tell me I'm wrong. Um, I think what really broke her when the emotion overcame her and we see her, uh, break, you know, with her back to him, I think it's when she says it's over and he doesn't fight at all. And he just says, okay, if that's what you want, um, because they've had those moments and he's talked, he's fought with her. He's tried, you know, he, he tries to say, I have something to say. She doesn't want to hear it. And he immediately gives up like, you know, and oftentimes they say, you know, when a relationship's over, it's when you, you, you don't even fight anymore. You know, there's nothing left to to fight over. And he, he gives up. And I think in that moment, you know, she's lost sight of what was valuable about their relationship. Even it wasn't the idea of romantic love, you know, that they in many ways were not a typical couple anyway. But he balanced her out in, in a peculiar way that when that was gone, 
to just have sit and have the conversation. And even if it was to say his points and have her beat the shit out of him, he just gives up. And, um, that's truly the end. And I, you know, and, and there's that great little moment like where Tom gets the, Tom even gets to, um, slam her about the dog when their dog Mondale, which could be like the funniest name, you know, like of a, of a little known vice president who you and I remember, but probably a lot of younger people wouldn't make that connection. But he says, you know, well, he's probably upset because he doesn't remember your scent anymore. Um, you know, like, but he, he still, I think he's the one that spoke to her emotions because the, the Roy's don't, don't deal in emotions in a healthy way. And with her, he did, and he would let himself be vulnerable. And even if it was for her just to lash out, to get it out, she doesn't have that anymore. And he doesn't, he's not willing to give it to her. He's not willing to try anymore. Right. Um, and so there's, you know, even if she's not just losing her husband, she's sort of losing her confidant and, and, and in that moment it's over. And I, and I did think it was a great choice that in that moment, like they don't storm off, they don't separate. They both just sort of lay down beside each other at perfectly perpendicular lines, you know, and she like, does, and she does turn down his offer of sex too, which, yes. I, thought, which I thought was kind of, I, I thought him doing that almost was an interesting one can look at it a couple different ways and I'm not going to bother exploring them because yeah, it's, a bit, it's a bit much, but it, it, to a certain extent, there's something kind of sad and pointed about it. On another, on another hand, it kind of undercuts the way he's been speaking about things. Um, this was the one, and in a weird way, like I said, I felt like he kind of almost became the more uh, dominant of the two, so to speak. Or he, he he's in, he's in, he, despite them perhaps winning this Pierce negotiation, he's still in a better place right now because, well, he's still with her dad. He's still right. part of that whole thing, and, and she's on the outs. She, right. She's where he's he's where she's supposed to be, at least in her right. mind, whatever. So her turning him down, and the way she did it was her also her way of just trying to grab back a little bit more of that power back, too, I thought. Right. So, and yeah, and what you mentioned before, and I meant I forgot, I left that out of what I was saying earlier. Um, yeah, because she had mentioned getting a divorce earlier, and one can easily see that maybe that is part of the motivation when she says it here as well. They're all, yeah, it's all part of the same thing, you know, and not that I want to spend another 20 minutes talking about Tom and Shiv's relationship, but I don't think these two, I I agree. There's that certain level of confidant that he's always been for her, but I also, I also never felt that she took him that seriously. And I, and as a result, which is why I never thought, I don't think anyone really thought that they were a quote unquote good couple. I mean, certainly, you know, um, I think there was a bit of we're using each other for, for a certain degree. And I think she felt she could, cause she was more at that time, she was more involved as being you know, the whole political operative kind of world and not really dealing with all the, the corporate America kind of stuff, whatever. Um, but once she kind of, I think once she kind of switched gears to go into that world, I think, which is also the world that he was interested in himself, 
that's when I see that they start to become at, they start forming the loggerheads that these two are going to ended up being at, I think. But, yeah. And, and, and finally, because I do want to wrap up the episode and get to the next show, I don't want to have a 15 hour podcast. Um, the, the end, but Logan, and he's watching news on, on ATN and he calls Sid, uh, the woman that we saw was the, I guess, the news director, or maybe she had a higher position than that, I forget, um, to complain about it. And it was an interesting touch to end the episode that way. And you can't, and, you know, either one watches the ad for the next episode or not. And I've, I've honestly already forgotten it. So whatever. Um, but just seeing the scene, I was like, okay, is this a bellwether of him like kind of redirecting his focus? to the news division of ATN, is this just going to be a one episode kind of a deal? Or is it going to go beyond that because it's something he can actually control or not? I guess it also depends on what actually go- happens with this go- sale to Gojo and how that proceeds. Um, but it was just an, in, and I guess there, one can make a metaphorical thing about it, but I, you know, the per, the person who tells the news is the person who controls the news and who has, you know, and, that, and that's where the real power is. And him, him maybe putting his foot, um, not foot, putting his fingers back into this side of the business that maybe he hasn't really been touching as much in recent years. Maybe him trying to exert some sort of control, especially this is his way of doing this since he's about to sell off the company, but he's supposed to still have some sort of title or position or whatever however it's supposed to work out maybe this is a way of trying to uh to exert some sort of power there i guess yeah and um just my final couple of thoughts you know a couple of lines that the the things that that stick out uh you know the humor in this episode and i i audibly laughed when he called the guy ball sack in a toupee <laughs> uh, you know that the, the and when he roasts Greg, he said, he says, does anyone want to smell Greg's finger? Oh, like in a room full of people, it's just, just horrifying. But, uh, I mean, a, a great, te- a great, uh, setup episode for the season to, to see where we're going. Um, uh, enjoyed it. I liked seeing all three of the siblings in the same place. I, I, I like that, that it started there. Yes. Um, where and, we left off. Yeah. I liked seeing that they hadn't separated back to their own lives and eliminating Tom from her life will keep her with them. And I think that that will make for a more compelling season to have it, have them working together in tension. Um, and of course we're all going to look forward to the moment they're all in a room together and the fireworks start, but I, I thought it was a great start. Right. Absolutely. It'd be interesting to see how long they do keep those three together because obviously the, um, as we said earlier, or you said earlier, really, um, or, or at least hinted at it and then said something else connected to it. The longer you keep those three together, the better their chances are of being able to succeed as far as dealing with their dad. Once they start to splinter off again, that's where it's likely to fail. Um, but yeah, I, I, I well, love the episode, love the beginning of the season, very excited for it. The only other note I wrote, which has nothing to do with anything specific, is just I think it's just my uh, way of looking at that family in general. And I wrote it down here. I wrote, some like to kill with kindness, but the Roys like to love with meanness. <laughs> and that's how they go about things. <laughs> so, with all that said, let us shift gears. And we are going to turn back 
the clock. Wow, it sounds like I'm on Scott Forgot the 80s. No, we're going to turn back the clock about 90 years and crack open Chapter 12 of Perry Mason. Now, as I've liked to do before, I like to sometimes just start off by just doing a little synopsizing of our three uh, characters. And, and by that, I mean, you, you got your Drake, you got your Della, and you got your Perry. And I, I know his name is Paul, but Drake is a more fun name to say. <laughs> you know. So I'll start with Drake since I just mentioned him a couple times. Paul Drake, he's this episode, he's morally conflicted. But he's in that ultimately does the right thing regardless of the consequences kind of mode. And by the end, he's again put on the best path forward by his wife yet again. Now, in this episode, Della, on the other hand, we see we see that she's still reeling from the secrets Perry kept from her. She tries to find distraction and comfort in the arms and apparently the lovely, I'll, I'll call it a villa. I don't know what the heck else to call it, of the new lady in her life. And that seems to be going really nicely until she's kind of derailed by those revelations from the aforementioned Paul Drake. And then she's trying to keep Perry on the path that a lawyer kind of needs to be on, regardless of his his or her client's guilt. But then you realize her situation is really just more about Perry than the actual case. And since I keep mentioning Perry, what about Perry? Who Perry, despite the fact he's being targeted by the press, and we all know where that's coming from, we'll talk about that momentarily, He's actually spending a lot of this episode trying to make the time to better connect with his son. And he, while he's doing that, he ends up making a new connection with his son's teacher. But then things start to careen out of control for him, once again due to those Drake revelations. Which leads to failed plea attempts, impulsive stunts, and I would say sinking even further into his the arms of his old friend, Depression, until that aforementioned teacher shows up at his door. So that's it. That's all I've said. Goodbye to everybody. No. Anyway, <laughs> before I do my skimming and skipping through the episode, Brian, if you would like to go into or expand on any one of two, three, whatever, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of free reign here just to give myself a break. Um, go and drink. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start. Want? I'll start in the order you did, and I'll start with Drake and and talk about uh, his role. We see that he has the moral quandary of what to do, um, and he seeks counsel on his wife. And I think we mentioned early this season that it seemed like they were expanding her role, and they have. And, and I think it's really worked. I think she has worked as a person for him to talk to and bring more into his decision making. Um, and again, she gives him good advice that that they probably need to know. Um, and but but what really I enjoyed that I quite frankly didn't see coming uh, that I thought was a nice touch was um, he discovers this. It obviously throws a big wrench into the case, but it's not quite so simple that somebody is dropping money for the Gallardo's uh, wife and. And they were renting those guns all the time. So they were getting money to do it. Um, Almost like this is one of those deals where you take care of my family and I'll do something for you because my life's shitty anyway. 
Um, so it, obviously there's another layer beyond it that is going to get really, really, um, compelling. And, and the thought I had when, when Drake discovers this, um, wouldn't it be interesting if Perry knows they're guilty and somebody's going to bribe the jury so they're found not guilty or they've been told they'll be found not guilty. Uh, if, if Perry plays ball the way they're supposed to play or, or they're guaranteed that if they're found guilty, the judge will throw out their conviction later, you know, when the hoopla dies down or they'll win an appeal. And then Perry has to face getting a victory or at least a semblance of a victory but it all being based on lies and that sort of runs into, you know, his discussions with Berger that justice is either real or it's theater and that, that this could be a kind of theatrical farce played upon the justice system by the rich and powerful that Perry will discover. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Wow. Got really quiet all of a sudden on the podcast. Um, did you hit the mute button? Is that what you did? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, le- I was letting you react to, to my first thought. Um, I think there's, there's a lot there. I mean, they have hit the, the idea of, you know, the illusion of justice throughout since the very first episode. Um, and it's referred to again in this episode. So one can make the, Make it's not it's not a great leap to make that that the the resulting culmination or the the final denouement of this case ooh denouement um I probably didn't even pronounce that correctly um will kind of fall into that pattern and 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 fall under the heading of oh look it's the illusion of justice um so I I, I would agree with that as well so um. Let's um I'm gonna, I'm going to skip a little bit through the episode now. Um starting with Mr. Drake, um who and who who is a person who gets to uh, have his little mingling with the opening credit letters. So I'd like to see who who gets that spot every episode if it's if it's someone on the show or not. But again it appear like that se- sort of seems to be one of the favored locations That's of that true. title sequence. And oh and as and, and as I go through the episode a little bit here, um there's gonna be at least one or two things I think I, I don't know if I said them for sure or not in a previous episode, but I feel I got them wrong and I just wanna make sure I set the record straight just so you know. Um or things I just wasn't sure about, and I think I'm a little more sure about now. So obviously we began with the Paul Drake scene, which he and of course he starts with him, you know. He's, he's speaking of pier. He's at the pier and he's looking out over the ocean. He's looking into the gun, into the bag where he has a gun. And he, he's got, you know, he's, he's got that moral dilemma. And you know, because obviously he's considering just dropping it right into the sea, but he can't do that. And then there's that conversation he has, and I guess it's with his wife, whatever. Um, is it better for Perry to know or not to know? And that's an, it's an interesting quandary because that chain, that, Having that information changes everything, as we're going to see later on. I think we all know where he's going to go because he, it has to be true to that character. If he, because we go back to this is the, you know when he quit the police force and all this, he's always more so than the other two. Even 
he's going to be making the right decision. He's the, I think he's the most um, clean person of the three of them morally, even though I think the other two are pretty tidy themselves, but him more so than, 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 than the other two. So, um, and if, and if, I'll, and if I can skip around the episode, like I said, I was going to do, you had that interesting moment when he came back to where he's staying right now, where you have, you know, there's different members of the family and I guess friends staying over because it's a community, whatever. And then you find you, it's the time where you, you get the impression of how he's being perceived and it's not great. You know, the guy, the other guy at the, at the table where they're playing cards referring to him as a black Sherlock. And then he drops the uncle Tom reference, which is like, woo. Especially if you make that reference back then, but even now it wouldn't be great either, but it's even a much worse thing to say at that point in time. Um, and I love, I, and I, and again, I'm not clear. Is it, again, I, I should, I think I, it's his brother in law. It is a brother in law. It's his wife. That's what I thought. I love the way he repeats in his insistence that he ain't dirty. Yeah. Because if there's one thing he knows about his brother in law, like what he just said, he he he's not a dirty he's not a dirty cop he's not a dirty he's, and now he's not a cop he's not a he'll, he'll, he's doing the right thing. Meanwhile, I don't know if the, I don't think they know about what happened with Perkins <laughs> and that and how big a hand he unintentionally had in that. I wonder if somehow that does come out at some point because that might cause some problems for him. I would I would think, but I guess we'll see if they go that route or not. So I, I'm, you know what? I'm just going to skim through the episode because since we're talking about Mr. Drake, well, I, I'll just continue along his storyline when he much, much, much later in the episode when he does finally show up at the office, and we know that this is where he reveals the truth to them, and it it's an interesting turn in the episode, and the one that was his, the what the third or fourth episode of the season now I've, I've already forgotten nine ten eleven twelve fourth episode of the season where it's like oh we as as viewers were like wait did did they did did they actually do it because you know you, and I love that you know I'm not, I'm not saying they did or they didn't obviously there's a whole lot more story to be told here but it's interesting to have a situation right now at that point where you're going oh you start to question it you start to go oh that's that might be a different kind of a story than one's used to seeing. Um, but the, other than the scene in the office between all three of them, and again, I, much like we were saying with the previous show we were just talking about, we like seeing these three people together all the time. I think we also love seeing the main three together on Perry Mason as well. But that when it culminates in them confronting the Gallardo brothers at, at, uh, at prison, and then they, then they t- say what they did and they talk about it. And you're like, whoa, did, wait, did they really do it? And that was the moment for me where I went, you know what? This just became a much more interesting mystery to me. Yeah. And Cause I'm like, I'm very intrigued by how they unravel this because you're going, they believe they did it or they're saying they did it, but they seem to be being on like, but we know that that can't possibly be. I'm just so fascinated by seeing how they're gonna how how they either ch- how that story will change. I, I I I'm kind of in love with that idea. I, I that it became like for me it was like the most interesting turn on episode. I, I I'm not really not really much of a thing to say there because I'm like okay the writer in me and the viewer in me and everything so going okay how how are we gonna how do they explain this away 
I'm very, I'm fascinated by that. So I, I really thought that was really interesting. It, it opens up a lot of possibilities in that they could be found guilty and you could be okay with it in a way that early in the, the show you're not, or they could be, they could even be found not guilty and you could be not okay with it in, in a weird way that, that, that it opens up all the possibilities of an ending that could surprise you in a way that it didn't before you reveal that. And it's also fascinating that, that the person most angry with them is Perry. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, oh. trust me. Yeah. That's that. I, I think when we get to it, because I, I'm almost, I'm almost wanna, I almost, I want to, I, I kind of want to sleep away all the other stuff. And then, cause I think that's the, the heart and soul of, of the season and this episode and that whole situation when we finally get there. But just to, just to put a button on, on Paul Drake's story for the episode, as we talked before, because we have the early on in the episode, um, is the conversations with the wife about, you know, re- telling Perry the truth about what, and, and the gun or everything. But I, what I loved even more and, you know, was later when his, his when he's 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 quest he, I love that he's the one questioning it, and he's basically saying I'll paraphrase him here, but just a simple sentence: the way that everything has lined up too perfectly. There's something right. there's something off here. There's something wrong here. And she says it as simply as he could. It's exactly what she should say. You're an investigator, so investigate. And right. I'm like, there you go. That's that's who I'm going to be following here because he's going to be the one to find. Ah, uh, was really great. Yeah, I, I love that. And um, again, we sort of see the Kirk Spock dynamic of Perry and Della. That you know that when Perry you know becomes overly emotional, Della's the one able to control her emotions and. And focus on what's important, and and send Paul off on a, on a, you know, potentially the the biggest thing that that would have happened. I mean, a lot of people would say we found it out. Let's quit. But by looking at it, um, taking a deep breath, looking at it differently, even if I mean, even if somebody is guilty. I mean, as a criminal defense lawyer, you think I've ever defended a guilty person that went to trial? I have. Do you think I've won those cases? Sometimes I have. Um, You know, and do I believe I've represented innocent people that went to prison? Absolutely. Um, And even if somebody's guilty as a lawyer, you still want to come up with the most creative defense you can because they're guaranteed that a person is guaranteed that right. And, and the idea of, just focusing on the guilt and if they did it is a, is, you know, is a really simplistic way to look at it. And Della sees through that and, and Paul going off on that task. I think Paul's going to have some really interesting uh, scenes coming up in the next, next couple episodes. Well, again, it, it's, it's interesting when we see how they kind of um, it, with all three characters, actually, I, I don't want to discredit, uh, Della in this regard either because they're they're like just like her going to see um, uh, Camilla at one point even though it never becomes about that which is interesting but we'll, I'll, I'll get there in a second um, I like that you know at the heart of this even though this is a story about a lawyer this this show is still being told to a large extent like as a detective story you know 
because Paul is acting as a detective, Perry is a former detective, and Dell is kind of working in that capa- to to a certain degree in that capacity as well. Maybe not. I mean, she might she might not be involved in fights and shootouts like the other two might or more likely to be, but she's still just she's very much as involved as they are as well. And to finish up what you were saying earlier, and then to finish up uh, Paul's story in the episode, it's the thing with the money where he goes to the Hooverville to see the gun rental, uh, the gun rental rat fuck, as I put him, (laughs) again. And that's where he's realizing that he rented the gun to them every day. And it's like, wait, where are they getting this money to do that? And then he's also like, so they were practicing. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. And then it's like, okay, interesting seeds planted for the future episodes. So reeling back things, we talked about Mr. Drake. Now we can talk about Miss Street. Maybe Della Street. That's a great, a great name, Della Street. Who wouldn't want to live on Della Street? Um, like with now, a, lo- a lot of the time we spend with Della in this episode is Della trying to get away from you know the Perry situation and and how she's reacting to it. Even though there's a very interesting moment, I'm kind of curious how how you it, how one would choose to interpret it. Um, and I think it's before. Yes, it's before she um, apparently gives Anita a call and they, and they go off on their on their drive and their weekend together. But she's going through the the postcards and letters that were sent to Perry by um, Emily uh, Lawson, right? Uh, Dawson, Lawson. Um, yeah, Lawson. And there's that moment she's looking at the postcard, and then we see. Uh, the woman, you know, filling the sandbag up with whatever, you know, putting it around her neck and walking off into the water to drown, whatever. And I was thinking, it, it becomes one of those things. And I don't know if it's really that important to wonder, but I always wonder. We, I've talked about this with some one, one other show at some point in the last several years. And the thought is, is that what, is, are we seeing what actually happened? Are we seeing what she's envisioning happened? Is, does it, and does it really even matter? Either way, because it is it is essentially what happened. Because the coroner's report is going to tell you uh, medical right. excuse me medical examiner's report. You know, they, they don't have a coroner; they have a medical examiner. You know, I watch Quincy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> boy, this is, no, anyway. Um, and I wasn't expecting that they were going to that, that they were going to show us that that they were they were going to you know, feature that in one of these episodes that they were going to keep beating that in. But I didn't mind that they did it because it was very well. You know, it's cool. Well, is cool the right word? You know what I mean. Yeah, it, it, it was a it was a unique choice. The you know fourth episode to now show the death. However, you you show it. I mean, I I never anticipated to see it, and the the way the way I took it was her imagination of it. But I think, as you've alluded to, um, her her imagination is deeply informed by having the the knowledge of what happened. So. I mean, I think it's an analog to what actually happened, but I think it's her recreating it. And I think the stress of the job and thinking of of that past and that being on her and, and you know, her the difference between her and Perry is when Perry gets upset, like he blows up and, and like it comes out with her repression. You know, it, it's more underneath the surface. So needing to get away and blow off some steam. Uh, definitely is more her speed. And I thought it was just a lovely, lovely scene. I mean, we talk about some of the beautiful stuff in this show. Um, you know, her and her friend driving down the highway, you know, smoking cigarettes, the wind blowing in their hair, just ultimate freedom. 
um, and going to that beautiful villa and the little touch of her saying like it's all you know basically fake stuff from decorated from movie sets. <laughs> yeah, MG, if, you know, they're all property of MGM props. Yeah, that. if you I, flip it over, it all says property uh, MGM. Yeah, I love that. I love that little touch there. Um, yeah, and 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 by the way, it it doesn't it. Uh, I only start thinking about things like that because it just, I, I'm just curious. I think as a speaking from, Oh God, I think the writing perspective would be, we're showing you that the character is thinking about this and now we're showing you the viewer, what happened, whether it's what she's imagining or not. It's up. You can decide that it's not, it's not relevant right now because that, that don't, the only time that's relevant is if there's a mystery and we're assuming there's no additional mystery with the Emily Lawson character. I don't think we're pursuing something down those roads where, wait, did she kill herself or not? I think, I think we all know she, we're supposed to think she did with all the letters and everything else. I don't think we're going that down that road. If it was the current mystery of this, of this show and we see one thing and we're like, Oh wait, is that truth or reality? Is that reality or not? So again, I don't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to sandbag us (laughs) with my thinking there. Uh, everything you just said about Della, absolutely. By the way, one more thing about that. Love that car. Amazing car. Oh, beautiful She's got, car. Her, her, Anita's got the nicest car of anyone in, in this show, including the one that Brooks uh, got, got murdered in. No, no, she's got the best car so far. Uh, <laughs> so again, following the track of Della, so she has this lovely weekend. You know, she has her huevos rancheros, you know, and <laughs> she's. We get a bit of nudity. I was kept wondering. I don't think we needed that, but I wonder if maybe the actress might have thought or insisted on it, you know, because he certainly didn't have to have that, but it was interesting. Um, but she does eventually come back. I love the interaction between her and Perry when uh, there's a few really nice lines in this episode. Um, and I. <laughs> I love when I believe Perry says to her, if one of us is going to start looking healthy, it might throw the whole thing off. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. <laughs> I thought that was a great little line between them. And I mean, between them, we, we, we get a little plot thrown in there with, you know, the Marion shows up because, you know, th- there's that woman again, we have to be reminded, Oh yeah, there's that woman in the home. That's, you know, that Lydell is old, doesn't want you to go anywhere near. And turns out she's got a brother who's a councilman on the seventh district, which is also the area where that stadium was being built. And, and then we, so we're getting this little cacophony of little factoids and we're going, okay, these are little jigsaw pieces that'll eventually, you know, fill in. Um, although they're kind of like the mystery version of like science, of science fiction gobbledygook, where it's just like, yeah, okay, then whatever. We'll, we'll have a modicum of interest in this until we have a, a scene with a character and there'll be some sort of conflict in that scene, but let's just get on with it. Um, and in this scene, we had, that's when Drake shows up with the gun and we have the, all their reactions to it. And like you said, each person uh, obviously has a different reaction. We already talked, we mentioned Perry, we're going to get to that soon. But it's what she tries to do, you know, especially after, you know, because she, she can't rein him in completely. And the problem is, you know, he's not just the lead. He he is the lawyer. She's, you know, she can't do that in any kind of capacity. So it's it's even more important. It's not like she's like, it's not like if this was, this was taking place instead of uh, 1933, it was, you know, you know, 2003, then she'd be like second chair or right. something like that. Right. Here she's 
until until something changes, you know, as far as you know her schooling and everything else. She, I mean, correct. I don't. Maybe I'm using the term incorrectly, but she's basically a glorified assistant right now. Until she, she's probably what you would call paralegal, a, like a paralegal or a law clerk, something yeah, like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. she can't get up and start questioning witnesses. Right, she's I, not admitted. I, right, at least I don't think so. Okay, um, but I like the the whole thing where she goes after all the stuff at Perry. She eventually goes to see Camilla. And what's interesting is that she, the idea is she's going there to talk about the case and to talk about more stuff dealing with, like, with Brooks McCutcheon, whatever. But really what they do, they end up talking about Perry Mason instead. Right. And we get, and all, and it becomes about their, the working relationship between her and Perry. And there's, there's, it's a lovely kind of interaction between her and Camilla and, and Camilla has shown herself to at least be fairly perceptive, especially about her opinions on Perry. I love the being a bit of an ass. Is kind of, she's not wrong. You know? But um, I just thought it was funny that we have this whole scene between them and that's all it ends up really that's all we really get out of it. Um, so it's it's almost it's a scene that I think, oh, we're going to get a little bit more plot here. It's like, eh, no, we're going to get a little bit more character instead. <laughs> Which I'm okay with. Totally okay with. But I thought it was interesting. So let me flip back to let's do the big one. That's Mr. Perry himself. And yes, there are other characters we should touch on. We will. There's very important things I need to say about them, but you know, we'll that that'll be the odds and ends, your your Lydells and your Holcombs and such. But Perry. So like I had said earlier, a lot of the episode, at least up until the whole situation when, when Drake reveals about the gun, if I'm not mistaken, it is about with Perry trying to reconnect with his son and the, like, and the, the, the horseback riding stuff, which was very interesting because I was going, Oh, I was like, well, I guess cause Perry did where he lived before then horse back riding would actually make some sort of sense because you know I, I i think i i tend to forget that's that that's how they established the character where he lived earlier so he's not a purely urbanized type of dude so i, I and then i the conceit of having the teacher you know just she works there on the weekend because she's a teacher she doesn't make enough money so she she makes ooh, pardon me um that was a weird son i think i think i had the mgm line in my stomach there um <laughs> I, I was real, and again, it, it wasn't much of a. <laughs> I, I think pretty much anyone watching the show picked up on, oh, uh, Perry and the teacher, they're going to hook up, aren't they? And then, but at least we get to see them the the way they start, you know, finding out about each other. I love the conversation between them is kind of nice, and because we also haven't gotten to see Perry in that kind of light uh, that much before. So I was really enjoying the the interaction between him and the teacher. Uh, uh, G- uh, Ginny, is it Haynes? Hayes? I Hayes, I think. Okay. But she almost like is the one of the conceits of the episode that I didn't really think about until it was almost the end is that it really sort of follows them over the weekend. Like it's not a work week. Like yeah. Della goes away for the weekend. He has his son for the weekend, so he goes to the horse and. And the weekend is good for them. Like the, what happens to him. I thought that the important thing with the teacher is when they're on the ride and he's finding out about her, she talks about what drew her to LA. 
Right. And the, the you know that it that it was the possibility. L.A. was a place of possibilities, and that's why she wanted to go there and sort of you know put a little crack in the cynicism around his heart for for what that city stands for for a lot of people. Um, that it wasn't. It's not just the burgers of L.A. That it's the Jenny Hayes of L.A. Right. Ames. Last name is Ames. Jenny Ames. Ames. So, okay. So yeah. Up. See, this, this time I made a I made a mistake and I actually corrected it on the podcast instead of the next podcast. Um, and the line that you're th- that you're referring to, I think, is when because it was one of the lines I kind of put a little put a little star next to. It was no one tells you what was. Only what can be. No, yeah. Which, that, that's, which is like, oh, that's it. That's, 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 that is the definition of it's a new city. It's a new location, place. It's not, you know, I, I thought that was a great line. Now, it, it, it's kind of interesting that we have, um, I wrote a note. I'm just trying to make sure I make any sense of it before I start saying it out loud. Interesting to have. To, to, Oh, okay. All right, not bad. Okay, I'll, I'll go with this stupid note I wrote. Um, I mentioned in my notes here that it was interesting to have two different scenes so close together that have characters that, you know, one is one is a new couple and one is a potential couple. And in both scenes, they, they have a moment where they're both looking out onto the, the landscape out before them. Because that actually happens in both scenes. You know, Della and Anita, they're looking out on the And then when they're at the edge on, on horseback, they're looking out at the view there as well. But then again, if we're going to talk about you know a repeated motif in the episode, you can also say that to a certain extent that we have two different scenes of two very different men who are both former or current officers of the law looking out into the ocean while their minds are obviously on something else, not the ocean before them. That would be Paul Drake at the very beginning of the episode. And we also have a moment like that with Holcomb in this episode. And we're going to get there as like, this is one of the things I want to make sure I'm clear or correct from a previous episode or just or clarify my own. Um, I wasn't sure about something. I think if anything, this episode makes it clear that I, I was not sure if who it was who killed Goldstein, the produce dude from that previous episode with the vice. And I thought it might've been Holcomb. Everything about this episode pretty much tells you, nope, no, 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 it's not, it's not Holcomb. <laughs> it would make, it would truly make no sense if it was Holcomb, considering what he tries to do throughout this episode, which we'll get to. Oop, there it goes again at the end. But I just wanted to make sure I got that on the record. Well, I think when we had that conversation, you had posited that you thought it was, and, and I'd said maybe it looked more like a shadowy figure. We don't man. know who it is yet. Okay. I think, no. But, okay. I just want to make sure. Oh. oh. You, I think you're right. Well, you're, well, you're not. You are right about that because it's certainly not Holcomb. So <laughs> I just want to make it clear. No, but but I do like that they they touch on him doing a mini investigation that he's not just thrown aside, and it does add to the intrigue because where his investigation leads is you to believe that Brooks is stealing from his own family. Right, and you know, what? let's you know, since we're since we let's talk a bit more about that. Yeah, you're absolutely right because we we see a very different type of detective work being done, and yet he doesn't really. I mean, he really doesn't really rough up anybody. He doesn't do anything that no. untoward. He, of course, he does end up encountering that same guy that we saw Lydell, you know, kind of put up against the uh, that that whirring thing, and then and pretty much scar probably scar his face for life there, um, and because he's trying to figure out what's going on. 
you know, with, and it's funny. It's like something as innocuous as there's we we don't got the produce on the boat anymore because of the deal with you know with Goldstein, but Goldstein's dead now, and it was something that Brooks had in place. And you realize, wait, kid, there's got to be more to it than that. And he's at the very least, he's piecing together. There's been some sort of financial shenanigans going on, like you were just saying. So I I did kind of enjoy that. Um, that was kind of interesting. And we should throw out since we're, just to get. Let's get one more additional character out of the way. That way we don't can, we can just talk about Perry for the rest of the damn thing. Oh, except for that one. Don't no, that's more of it later. Um, Lydell, we we do have it seen early on in the episode where Lydell is talking to the fellow who we've already heard on the radio, the the Rush Limbaugh of his day. Rush Limbaugh meets Walt, Walter Winchell, except you know, but more, he's more uh, Rush Limbaugh's size. Um, Another thing I wanted to clarify, I had mentioned last week on the podcast that I assumed or thought that that dude was probably not an American, that he was probably British or Irish. I am totally wrong about that. He's 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 more American than me. <laughs> Looked up his bio. He's he's from here. He's not. I I, I totally got. I should have went. I should have stuck with. He's like a mini Peter Coyote. I should have just stuck with that instead of thinking he was from anywhere else. I think I saw a photo of him. I thought, oh look, he looks he looks like an old elderly Johnny Rotten or something. Nope, I was wrong. So. Yeah, and his name is Finnerty, the one you were talking about, the radio guy. Right, 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 right. Um, and was that played by? Is that the character played by John DiMaggio? I can't remember. I think it was. If it is, I should look. I, I think the I think the person playing him is John DiMaggio. I know m- almost all of our listeners are gonna be like, I don't know who that is. I was like, that's okay. It's all right. I don't expect you to. Most people don't. John DiMaggio, if it, if I'm right about this, and I think I am, I'm going to put myself out there on a risk once again. John DiMaggio is a guy who does a lot, has been doing a lot of cartoon voices for the last several decades. You know, whatever you've watched over the last 40 years, 30, 40 years on cartoon wise on TV, John DiMaggio probably did some voices. You watch the Batman cartoons, he did voices there. You watch some of those Disney cartoons, he did some of the voices there. You na- you name it, he he he's a voice guy. And the fact that this is the guy whose voice we hear on the radio really makes me think that's got to be who it is. I didn't IMDb him enough to know, but I'm pretty sure that's who it is. I hope I'm right. If I'm wrong, hey, <laughs> well, I'll I'll offer another retraction next week. <laughs> So we can now circle back to Perry, and, and really, it's about with with Perry. After all this happens, after after the revelation, it's what you were hint, hinting at talking about before, and I think it's the crux of the episode. It's Perry's reaction to being to, to finding out that his clients, at least right now, it appears to him his clients are definitely guilty, and he's still got that. He's still about the more naive righteousness of. Um, I, I can't uh, not wanting to defend a guilty client because again he's still new to the he's still new to the law game you know that's that's not what that's not how we thought of this you know, bit of a square there Perry and just the the anger he shows especially when they leave especially after they meet with the brothers and he's like positively livid on the on the courtroom steps and I, I like that there's that moment where we don't know what he's about to do. Is he about to ask off the case, which which would be tantamount to, you, know, you might as well just put them in the executioner's chair or however they did it back then. Um, but instead, it's he's trying to, 
And this is the scene where he goes to see Milligan. And I love that it's not just Milligan. It's Milligan and Hamilton Berger. Because if it's going to be about a deal, you got got to have the main guy there. And that's a really strong, great scene. And I, 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 it's interesting watching their reaction. And the one thing that Perry uses is almost like, if you, if we don't go with this deal, well, then I'm just going to smear your, per- the, your pretty boy, you know, victim across, you know, across the, the newspapers, you know, because of all the stuff we know about him with this, this girl in a home kind of a thing that that's got his name all over her. Apparently, I think he says. Yeah. Um, and, and tries to make a compelling case for why they should make a deal. Um, which you weren't sure, like you said, you're not sure what he's going to do. Is he just going to quit? He does go and do what a lawyer would do with the guilty client and does, doesn't just sell them out. Right. Right. Uh, right, right. He doesn't say like, well, they're guilty, but do this. Like, he still says, like, you know, hey, I, I may still have some moves. It, it is telling that Milligan says, well, you must think like something's wrong with your case for you to try to make this deal. But the thing I like most is the interactions going on. Milligan's talking to Perry, but Perry's talking to Hamilton. Right. <laughs> and of course. Like of course. Lot. Of course. If you can answer quickly, <laughs> just want, I just, I mean, I, I think I know the answer, but. Uh-huh. Just, just, I'll say it's more for the listeners. Is Perry obligated as an officer of the court to share the thing about the gun or not? No. I didn't think he was, but I now, wasn't sure. What he can't do, like, he put the gun in the safe. Like, when, when they find the gun, they put it in the safe. Right. You can't destroy evidence. Right. You're, you're not allowed to destroy it. He's not obligated to tell them he found the murder weapon. Um, now there may come a time where he has to produce that depending under state law. Um, and he can't, now that he knows it exists, he can't fabricate evidence to counteract it. Um, but he, he like, say for instance, they produced a ballistics report, um, or, or some testimony came up. You, you, you he could certainly cross examine it. What he couldn't do would be to fabricate something to say, like, well, I know this is the gun and this came from that place. Now, what he could do, I know this sounds like a distinction and people that hate lawyers, you can hate us all you want. But if you're ever in trouble, you want one of us. He could say, aren't there guns that make similar patterns on the bullet? Like you can cast doubt, but you can't affirmatively lie or misrepresent evidence. So, so that's what by Paul telling him, it does box you in a corner in some ways. And in the same way that if your client, like the guy said, I did it. Um, if they get on the stand and say, I didn't do it, then you're in a moral quandary. Um, if they tell you they lied before, but no, they really didn't do it. You could put them on. But if they tell you, hey, I did it, but I'm going to get on the stand and lie and say I didn't do it, you can't put them on the stand. Right, right, right. That that much I know. I hope hopefully others do as well. Um, I don't know if we if we focused on it or not. And I don't I'll just really quickly say I thought it was very interesting that during that scene between 
the earlier scene between um, Perry, Della, and Paul uh, with the gun, that she's the one who very uh, matter-of-factly and fairly quickly takes the gun and puts it in the the safe behind the book behind the fake books or whatever <laughs> and, the, and the way they both look and kind of reacting to her and i'm like because i'm and, and it was that moment like huh that's an interesting decision i was like all right well you're putting away for safe literally putting it away for safekeeping i said literally twice in the podcast i apologize um let's talk about it and but let's Sticking with, back to Perry, I, I, I like the idea of going somewhere where I didn't expect the episode to go. He has all the situations that he's been you know, with the gun and everything, and how his case he, in his mind has probably been wrecked, and now it's he's defending guilty clients now and whatever. The decision to go back to the racetrack at night with with uh, Strickland, we've got Strickland in this episode finally. Who is eating outside again. Eating outside again. You know, you should hang, you know, has, where's Jesse Pinkman when you need him? Um, <laughs> to go take a, to go ride on the horse. <laughs> take a ride around the track, which is kind of insane. <laughs> the whole thing is just like, wait, what? And, and I'll tell you, for a moment there, when I, what ends up happening is that all the all the lights in in the place suddenly come on, you know, boom, boom, and that kind of spooks the horse who rears back, and Perry goes flying off the horse and whatever, and then you see all the, all the people who work there hurt going after the horse, whatever. For like a split second, I was like, "Wait, did they did Perry just get shot?" <laughs> I, I, I immediately rewound, like going, "Oh no, it was just the lights." All right, and but this leads to them running up. But although Perry seems to be enjoying himself, Strickland does not. Not Strickland is not enjoying this at all. He's kind of really pissed off about it. And as they have, he has words. And it's really Strickland having the words, you know. And I mean, Perry says some crappy thing. He doesn't realize, dude, Strickland's in a very different situation in his life than you are. He, and there are things he, there are, there are kind of rules and things. He may be shady <laughs> in many regards, but. There's a lot of things he still has to d- work within the system as much as he can, and he can't. And the people you're rallying against, they're still the people he's technically working for. He can nudge and help you here and there, like he did in that previous episode. But dude, you you, you basically because doesn't like Perry say something kind of nasty to him? Like I don't know if he calls him a traitor, but not a traitor, but he he says something to him which kind of really pisses him off. I, I didn't write down. He, what it was. He, he basically like infers like that that he's changed and he's kind of a kind of a coward. Like, yeah, yeah, right. You know, right. like and, and basically Strickland says, you know, like hey, I've got I've got bills to pay. Like you know, and the people that pay my bills would not look favorably upon this. And, and, you know, like, let's be honest, Perry can't pay him if he gets fired. Like he, he's got a job. And it, at that time, like, as you, we've talked about post depression to have a steady income with a regular paycheck, probably don't want to give that up. Right. No, of course not. I mean, we, we are reminded a number of times throughout the season, um, more and just as much as last season as well, that these are, we're still dealing with characters in the throes of the depression. And that has obviously hit certain people more than others. And that's what, hence the Hooverville scenes and hence Paul Drake situation. And, you know, it's not like Strickland does what he can, but it's not like he's well to do, you know? So. The rest of the episode, as far as Perry is concerned, um, there's that interesting moment that happens after that 
next when when next we see Perry, it's when he arrives at the school to pick up his son. But he's like he's really he's he's there. He, he's he's adamant about taking you know finding his boy and taking him home. And in the moment, we're not really clear why he's acting that way in this moment. Although I feel they fill it in almost like a an after the fact kind of thing. When one of the other, I guess, presumably one of the other parents, I, I guess, um, sees and recognizes who he is. And this is what fed, we got fed earlier in the episode with, um, what Lionel was doing with the newspapers and which, which we also saw in, um, the scene between Perry and Strickland, all the different uh, ways Perry's being smeared across, across the city, whatever. And dude actually at one point calls him Maggot Mason, which was also hinted at in, the, in that earlier scene. And Perry hauls off and decks the guy. <laughs> and, and at that point, of course, being violent in front of your son, and there's always that hint that this might not be the first time his son has seen him be violent. Maybe not to him, but seen him be that way. You know, probably, st- you know, vestiges of the war and whatever from him. And the teacher says, like, I'll, I'll take him home. You know, you just, you know, you just, you just need to go essentially. So is, is him being that way to pick up his son? Now, uh, this is the next, what the scene between him and Strickland was at night. This is the next day after school. So it's not fresh on the heels of that. But is it because he's still re, he, okay, is it A, because he's still, kind of in his own head about what happened as far as his clients and whatever? Or is it more the way that he's being treated, being spoken about in the press, is, and, and, and it's building, it's getting even worse? Is that impacting the way he's acting right now? Or are, are we going to have the uh, the easy answer, like, ooh, it's combination of both? <laughs> what do you think? No, I think it's the second thing you said. I, I mean, I think... L.A. being a new city and the legal community not being very big, um, this would probably be the equivalent in in that time period of being doxxed and knowing that now um, a lot about him is out there and it's not just, um, you know, he's defending somebody. It's he's defending the worst of the worst. He's a bad person. And. In, in addition to that, um, there's maybe also the fear that if the McCutcheons knew he was at the racetrack last night, maybe some, maybe somebody shows up at the school to see his kid because Perry's going after his son in, in the case. So, I mean, my thought was either he was That's interesting. reacting that. to the fear maybe of Liddell coming after his kid or he just felt the pressure of all the news coverage and what that could mean for his son. I hadn't thought about the going after his kid thing. I guess that's a possibility. That's very interesting. I, I just, it was one of those things where I kind of felt that maybe we lost a scene that might have hit the cutting room floor. I, totally. And, it was jarring. It was jarring the way he and acted. And I kept thinking, okay, it, oh, did they, wait, they probably didn't have car radios back then. I don't remember. Or did they? Anyway, no, it would have been at home anyway. I thought they would have plugged in a scene, Perry at home, that radio broadcast, that guy who he, who they show us in the beginning of the episode or whatever, railing on him, and that kind of 
you know, that sparks a, a, a new fury in, in Perry because, you know, this guy has even, you know, that's, it's, it's not just newspapers now, it's radio, it's in people's homes, you know, they just flip a dial and he's being, which is, especially think it's 1933, how pervasive radio felt back then. Right. You know, ra- radio was the god, there was no TV, whatever. So, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we then get that quick little moment of Perry going to the movies, but not like when he went to the movies with his son, <laughs> um, sinking further into his, you know, depression there. And we have that moment of that woman who sits next to him, who makes him an offer for just for a quarter. And he counters her offer. <laughs> he'll, du- he'll double that for her not to do that. <laughs> Why am I being so coy? Cause if it was succession, I'd be saying it. <laughs> Suck your dick for a quarter. Oh, but did I just say it? There you go. Anyway, by the end, the teacher, Ginny, does show up at his home. Um, cause like with that, that food that he had mentioned earlier that he liked about LA, I think it was like the, the sandwich with the French dip, <laughs> whatever. And I, I just, there's something very kind of, I love the moody, noiry kind of style of dialogue of her walking away and he's standing there and he just says, do you want to come in? And the way she just stops, turns around, and just comes back in, and then the way the door closes behind them, I don't need to know, but I know what what I mean. And I just like, all right, that happened a little sooner than I was expecting, but uh, I'm good with that. And that's pretty much the episode, other than the revelation that you mentioned earlier of and the the mystery of um, Sophia at the with the Gallardos at the camp. Uh, following that, you know, little drawing or ma- I, don't, I thought I was like, wait, is it a map? Is it just this is what the car looks like where you're going to find this? And here's a picture of it. it I think it, there was a drawing and inside of the where, drawing where, where was a be. picture of the car. Yeah, that's so she could saying. identify the car. Yeah, too. So, yeah. And, and I, I in my um, in my nerdiness, uh, I did look up the uh, Hirohito withdrawing from the League of Nations. <laughs> and that occurred on March 28th, 1933. Yeah. So. The newsreel that happened would have probably been from that summer of 1933. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's 1933. I thought you were going to say this episode took place in March of 1933. Like, wow. And this air, the episode aired in March of 2023. <laughs> on my birthday. No, it wasn't on my birthday. <laughs> and it just, yeah, and I realized, and by the way, the, the draw, it just, it just hit me just now. It just shows how stupid I was like. Oh yeah, the, the the brother must have drawn that because he had the pencils and the paper. Oh, look, it all, yeah, it all comes together. Wow. Yeah, and, I, and and the last little fact I'd add, I really thought it was a nice touch that uh, that Drake and his wife danced to Louis Armstrong. I, I like that that scene. That there's, you know, the contemporary music of the time, and we see like a human moment between Paul and his wife, and uh, I enjoyed that. That was very nice. Also, and what I enjoyed about that. Even more, I believe, was uh, the realization we've got forty-five minutes. Maybe, yes, and if and until there's other people in this house, maybe we don't want to waste it talking or dancing. So I was like, "There you go, there you go." Yeah, how to be yeah. how to be young again? Okay, um, that's pretty much the episode. I kind of want to tie a bow on it right then and there because yeah, that's we've talked enough. All right, <laughs> in my opinion, if you have something else to say, say it at the end of the podcast, Brian. So you all out there, if you enjoyed this podcast, you'll enjoy hanging out on our Facebook page as well, Serious TV Drama Podcast page. Join the page and then join the conversation. 
You can find this podcast, you know, where on most major and minor podcast platforms. But if you head to podbean.com, that's the one place where you can find and hear all 373 of our podcasts. Obviously, just type in Serious TV Drama Podcast. Oh, by the way, if you type in Scott Forgot the 80s, you know, you'll find my podcast there, too. But spell Scott with one T, because guess what? I tried it with two Ts. It won't come up. God damn it. Anyway... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's a good podcast. I talk about 80s movies that I refuse to see because I hated them. I had no interest. Anyway, next, uh, you can also follow us on Instagram, Serious TV Drama as one word, and of course, Twitter, where we are at STVD Podcast. SSTVD, of course, as Serious TV Drama. We will be back next week to discuss the latest episodes of both Succession and Perry Mason. And with all that said, I wanted to thank you. Brian, for everything you brought to this podcast, as you always do. No, I enjoyed it. And uh, two great shows, back-to-back nights of great television on HBO. Check it out. There you go. So, again, thank you, Brian. And all you out there, thank you for listening. And I'll say good night. Good night. Mm-hmm.